play and stay on Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. Stand up paddleboarding, hiking, great restaurants and breweries. I'll tell you more about your next vacation destination later in the show. Bell, and this is Your Last Meal, the show where celebrities share stories about the foods they love most, and we dig into the history, culture, and science of those meals with experts from around the world. Today on the program, musician, beatboxer, and comedian Reggie Watts. Reggie spent eight years as the house band leader for The Late Late Show with James Corden, and he has a new book out now called Great Falls, Montana, a memoir mostly focused on his teenage years living in Great Falls, Montana. Reggie grew up with a French mom, eating escargot on special occasions. So we're gonna learn about the fascinating world of snail farming. There are only two people in the entire United States raising snails for food, and I chat with them both. The biggest question people always ask is they wanna know about snail sex. All right, then I'll ask it. Uh, What's up with snail sex? (laughs) All right, let's get into it. Ladies and gentlemen, Reggie Watts. Okay, he's here. He's here. Recording in progress. Hello. Recording in progress. Hello. Hey. Good morning. Thanks for thanks for being here. Oh yeah, thank you so much. Uh, what is your first question? Um, how do we how do we get here? I think that's a question that your mom and your dad are supposed to tell you when you're little. Reggie's book Great Falls, Montana, starts in Spain. He's a toddler, sitting at a bar with his father. Reggie orders himself an orange juice in Spanish. His dad orders a cognac. At the time, his family lived in Madrid. But less than a year later, they'd moved to Montana, which was a huge culture shock. Reggie would experience racism for the first time, and his relationship with his dad would drastically change. Your mom is from France. Your dad is African-American. You were born in Germany. You lived in four countries by the time you were four years old, the last one being... America. Uh, So I'm just curious what food was like in your life growing up. Like, what did you guys eat at home with this big melange of culture? The day-to-day meals and things like that was mostly um, American processed foods to an extent. I mean, like shake and bake pork chops and macaroni and cheese and scalloped potatoes, probably Pepperidge Farms, you know, or whatever, you know, like a lot of prepared foods because my mom was a hard worker and my dad was a worker and she wasn't really a great cook anyways, um, self-admittedly. Uh-huh. Uh, so yeah, so it was a lot of, a lot of that, but on the holidays we would have escargot and duck out of orange. So there was a little bit of French stuff. Crepe, my mom, my mom would make crepes sometimes. French toast, French kiss. Fr- French fries, French fries, French yeah. dressing. Gosh, I'm awfully <laughs> sorry your mom blew up, Ricky. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know like what your mom thought about American food when you first got here, or did she just take to the the craft mac and cheese like a fish to water? Uh, I think she just you know she liked the flavors of these things and just was just doing it because it, it was easy. <laughs> so that was the vibe that I got. Like I never got this feeling that she she was like you know disappointed in it, but it's all that she had access to or anything like that. Uh, she, yeah, she took to it. So you grew up in Great Falls, Montana, which, of course, is the name of your new book. I'm curious, where do you think your mom got snails for escargot in Great Falls, Montana? You know, I don't know. It was uh, this, you know, the, the company she used was Ugma. And uh, I don't think it was maybe she 
got it shipped or something like that, or she you know, went to a store and had it specialty shipped or something like that, or okay. went to France and because they come in cans. Uh, so probably just brought oh. them back from France in cans because you could just store them. So there was no chance that these came from your yard? No. No. Different snails, <laughs> too, I think. Okay. It makes sense that Reggie's mom was cracking open cans of escargot because prior to 2013, that was pretty much the only way to get edible snails in the States. There are only two haliciculturists in the U.S. That is what you call a snail farmer. And the first was Taylor Knapp. I am the head snail wrangler at Peconic Escargot. Taylor is a chef. He was cooking at Noma when it was named the best restaurant in the world. And 10 years ago, he had his own restaurant in Long Island focused on local ingredients. Taylor wanted to cook with fresh snails, but when he realized there weren't any available anywhere in the country, he started raising them himself. Now he sells his petit gris snails to some of the best chefs in the country and curious home cooks. Taylor's snails are raised in a 300 square foot greenhouse. They take six to nine months to mature, and depending on the season, that small space will be home to 30 to 70,000 snails. One of the really important things that we're doing differently is what we're feeding them. Throughout their life, they're eating wild plants, things like dandelion, clover, uh, mugwort, sorrel, these very strong uh, but native wild plants. And, and they really enjoy eating them because they have a whole lot of nutrients and they have a whole lot of flavor. So when you end up eating this finished product, it's very herbaceous. Uh, and compared to the canned snail, you're going to taste a lot of those plants and herbs that the snail has been eating. We're finishing them on on herbs like basil and tarragon and mint. Those herbs kind of stay in the snail's stomach when we harvest them. So we're really kind of seasoning them from the inside out. And, and that all kind of lends to their final flavor. That is so interesting. I read that you have a process because they're in dirt that you have to get the dirt out of them. Yeah, exactly. So so the snails that we raise, the petit gris variety, it's small enough that you can eat the whole snail, kind of like eating a whole little neck clam or eating a whole oyster. Our snails, because you're eating the whole thing, including the stomach, we have to make sure that they're really clean. So uh, two weeks before they're ready for harvest, we pull them off the dirt. They eat the dirt because there's a lot of calcium in the soil and they need the calcium to, to build their shells. So then uh, once they come off the soil, we're giving them just a diet of, of tasty herbs. Again, those things like basil, mint, parsley, and tarragon. Uh, and so all the dirt comes out and they end up with a stomach full of tasty herbs. Uh, and then they're off to, to chefs and home cooks around the country. Taylor describes snails as having the texture of a clam and the flavor of a mushroom. So we encourage people to have a snail taco or maybe some snails with buttered cheesy grits or polenta. Um, it makes a great addition to like a ramen or, or anything along those lines. Uh, 11 Madison Park skewered them with uh, morel mushrooms and grilled them tableside. I myself at our own little pop-up restaurant, we've done uh, snail and mushroom tart with like a savory mushroom mousse on the bottom and then these poached snails on top. Like I mentioned, there are only two snail farmers in the U.S. The other is Rick Brewer, who runs Little Gray Farms Escargot's on the misty Olympic Peninsula of Washington State. How did you get into this fairly unusual line of work in the United States? I would love to have a really fascinating uh, origin story like the uh, Marvel comics, but uh, unfortunately, it's a little more mundane than that. Um, I've just always really been interested in snails. I grew up in the country and 
got to wander the fields and beaches and find different snails there. Once I got a little older, I worked at a zoo. I eventually became, very long title, the North American Species Survival Coordinator for Parchula Snails. So from there, I just got more and more interested in snails and involved in the snail world. Uh, eventually decided, you know, where does escargot come from? And once I found out that it's pretty much 99.9% canned imported from overseas, I said, we need to do something about that. Like Taylor, Rick raises his snails in a 300 square foot greenhouse. So what kind of snails are we eating here? Like, can you just go pluck a snail off the sidewalk in front of your house or are these special slash different? Uh, well, I would like to say that they're very uh, unique and special, but uh, in essence, yes, they are. These snails that you generally find out gliding around out on the sidewalk. Um, however, I would not suggest you eat those uh, because you do not know what they've been eating and they will, of course, you're eating the whole animal. Um, but yes, it's essentially a species called Cornu aspersum. Uh, they're originally a Mediterranean species, but uh, have been in the United States probably for the last oh, three or 400 years as an invasive species. There's many common names, common brown garden snail, which doesn't have much of a ring to it. But in French, they are called petit gris, which means little gray. And that's how I got the name of uh, the farm. Everything sounds cuter in French. It does, yes. The only way that I ever hear about eating them is kind of the classic French way with you know, butter and garlic and maybe a little bit of parsley. Uh, what are some other ways to prepare them? How do you eat them? How do some of the chefs you work with prepare them? Uh, one of the ways that I eat them the most and that I enjoy them the most is as a snail pizza. Oh. So make your pizza the way you'd normally like it. And, and uh, you can just spread some snails around on that and eat it that way. Uh, you can put them in pasta. I've made them with green beans. Really, you can have them anyway. They're kind of a very earthy, mushroomy, almost like flavor. And so they'll kind of help absorb the flavor of what's around them, which is probably why they've been popular with butter. What kind of reaction do you get from people when you're, you know, out and about or at a dinner party and people say, oh, what do you do? Like, what is the common response? I always get a response. You know, the, the biggest question people always ask is they want to know about snail sex. Now, I don't know if chicken farmers and everything else have that. That seems to be the first question people go to. All right, then I'll ask it. Uh, what's up with snail sex? <laughs> um, you know, they're hermaphrodites, so they have both fully functioning male and female reproductive organs. You still need two to tango, as they say. But when they do it, they can actually fertilize each other, and then they're both capable of laying um, eggs that can hatch out into young. So you can, you know, you get two snails and you can have up to 300 babies within a pretty short time. Wow, bunnies better watch out. Exactly. Except yeah. it does take them about eight to 10 hours when they mate. So they are slow when it comes to that too. <laughs> See, this is why people want to know. Interesting facts. Well, I actually, without meaning to, ran across some snail mating facts when I was reading an article and it said that they put out love darts. What does that mean? They do. They have these little uh, calcium darts. They look under microscope like harpoons when they're interested in each other and they have they have actual courtship. Um, what they will do is they will try and fire these little love darts into the other one's head or foot, as the case may be in a snail. They can actually mate with several different mates, but the one that successfully lands a love dart, that one's sperm will most likely be the one that then fertilizes the eggs. Where does the love dart come out of? Where do they throw it from? 
Well, they have a little hole, if you'll look sometimes if you're up close to a snail and kind of in the side where their tentacles are. And those are tentacles, not antenna. Antenna are only on TVs and insects. Okay. And can you see it happen or is it very tiny? It actually ejects rather quickly. Um, I've had the misfortune of getting some jammed under my fingernail and it's not pleasant. Oh, so they're really sharp. Yeah, it's like a little needle. Was that on mistake or do you think they're so used to you that they're like, I'll try to mate with that guy? Yeah, no, this was just while I was handling them. Normally I wear gloves, but for that was early on, whatever reason I wasn't wearing them and I just it just got jammed. They didn't they didn't shoot at me. I wasn't yeah. sexy enough for them or anything. It's just I happened to get it under my my fingernail and, and it was not fun. I think you need the shell. That is why you're just a slug to them. I do, exactly. Kind of a side note. This love dart is where they think the idea of Cupid came from, firing his arrow to capture his his love. And there's some thought that people witnessed snails doing this, and that's how they came up with the uh, myth of Cupid. Back to Taylor. What's the weirdest question that you get from people? Oh, the weirdest question. Well, you know, it's a, it's a strange uh, and very photogenic animal, the snail. So we get requests for uh, people that want to use them in commercials or TV shows. Uh, we've had Jimmy Fallon's crew reach out and want to do a snail race. Uh, unfortunately, because of the USDA restrictions, we were unable to provide them. And then we have um, artists. I, I always get a couple artists every year that reach out that want to dip the snails in paint and do snail paintings. I'd say that's about as weird as it gets. That's so funny. I wouldn't have thought of any of those things. You're like a celebrity snail handler now. Yeah, yeah. I wish we could get more out to people, but uh, yeah, we, we try and keep the regulation people happy. Since the snails are invasive, there are tight regulations on them. They must be raised indoors and they can't be shipped live. I know a lot of people shudder at the thought of eating a snail, but they're cousins of oysters, clams, scallops, all of these foods that we consider delicacies. I think it is all cultural perspective. It wasn't that long ago that prisoners in New England were fed lobsters when lobsters were considered a throwaway food. How long have people been raising slash eating snails? Uh, well, you know, they have found remains in Paleolithic sites showing that snails were being cooked and eaten. And that goes back 40, 50,000 years or so. I'm sure they were eating them before that as well uh, because they're you know, a little easier to catch than a mastodon or something like that. When people talk about sustainability and protein, you hear about you know the possibility of bugs in the future that we're going to be eating crickets and grasshoppers. But this yeah. seems like a really, really sustainable form of protein. Yeah, the, the snails are incredibly sustainable. I mean, we're raising tens of thousands of snails, which equals hundreds of pounds of protein in, in a 300 square foot greenhouse. So, you know, the more people we can get on board with this, the better. And I don't think anyone's going to be substituting escargot for their hamburger or hot dog. But if we could get more people eating a couple snails for an appetizer instead of less sustainable seafood, it would make the world a better place. You know, we, we have a hard time kind of lumping them in with insects because it really starts to turn people off. Although I have eaten my share of, of bugs and insects, but they're right on track with just, you know, the same amount of sustainability. These little things are just packed with protein, zero fat, zero cholesterol, lots of iron, and we're raising them with very little water usage and a, and a very small footprint. 
Taylor sells raw escargot that he ships out the same day that he harvests it. He also sells cooked snails with either a black truffle or buttery garlic sauce that you can easily heat up at home. We also have the snail caviar, which is pretty unique. Um, no one in the U.S. is doing that. Been around in, in Europe for a little while. So these are the snail eggs. Snails, you know, they burrow down into the soil like a turtle and they'll deposit 50 to 100 eggs uh, a couple times a year. And so we take a portion of that. Most of them we hatch because we need we need more escargot. But a portion of them we pull aside and we rinse them and pat them dry and cure them with salt. And we pack them into these jars um, as this snail caviar. And it is just so unique. Uh, they're bright white pearls. Uh, they taste like mushrooms and carrots and uh, woods. Uh, it's a very herbaceous. And it's just such an interesting uh, counterpoint to all the other caviar out there that tastes like seafood. It makes a great counterpoint to a raw oyster. Um, we have people serve it with mushrooms uh, or with eggs. So we, we sell that to our chefs, but it's also available on our website for home cooks and just anyone uh, interested in, in trying that out. But it's, it's one of the most unique things I, I think that's out there. It's just so unusual. I think I've only had escargot twice. I have certainly never made it at home, but Taylor sent me some escargot and some of that snail caviar to try. It should be here any day now. So keep an eye on my Instagram page to see what it looks like and to see how I prepare it. My Instagram handle is Hello Rachel Bell. Okay, after the break, Reggie tells us how being left-handed changes the way he orders coffee. If you're a fan of naturally gorgeous, off-the-beaten-path vacation spots with small-town charm, you're going to want to plan a visit to Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, where you can grab a scoop of homemade ice cream and stroll around the adorable European seaside village of Paulsbow, or walk on the ferry in Seattle and get off in downtown Bainbridge Island. And May is the perfect month to visit Bremerton or Silverdale, where you can get out of the city and into the forest in just 15 minutes for a beautiful hike. Enjoy a farm-to-table meal at Bremerton's Restaurant Lola, a Black-owned business. I really need to make the trip out there for their Creole brunch. And in the morning, stop by Saboteur Bakery for croissants that are so flaky and buttery, you'll think you're in Paris. There's also a gorgeous golf course in the middle of the forest, and there are several naval museums in Bremerton. Go to visitkitsap.com slash yourlastmeal to learn more. That's K-I-T-S-A-P, or you can find a link in the show notes. Play and stay on the Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. Reggie's book, Great Falls, Montana, is basically a coming-of-age memoir. And besides being a super creative oddball, he was also something of a romantic. In the book, you also talk a lot about wanting to fall in love when you're a teenager. You have these ideas of how you want to romance a woman. I was wondering if cooking a meal has ever been a part of that for you. Like if you remember the first time you cooked for a woman or if you have something as you are older that is like your dish. Mm, woman cook. Uh, no, I, uh, <laughs> I I wouldn't say I ever had a secret thing that I would make. I mean, I'm good at making grilled cheeses. Uh, I made bread for a little while, but but I never made bread to like impress a lady or anything like that. I, uh -huh. I, I, I most of the impressing, I guess, comes from choosing really good restaurants and having good culinary experiences. Uh, but no, I, I wish that was more magical in the kitchen. Grilled cheese, though, I mean, that is one of the best foods ever, in my opinion. 
It is, and it's uh, you can you can make up pretty good like healthy grilled cheese. So they don't have to be these American cheese monsters that you get at diners. How do you make a healthy grilled cheese? Um, well, I tend to use like really good high end cheddar. You know, like a aged cheddar. Yeah, I usually stick stick with cheddar. Like this one, you know, some people do like I'm using four cheeses. And they're like, you don't need four cheeses. Um, just just one cheese is fine. Um, but uh, yeah, one cheese and then a really good whole grain bread. You know, like a Ezekiel bread or something like that. You just have to get the heat right, but everything like comes together really nicely, and you get a really nice golden brown finish. But you get like this whole grain vibes with a really good cheddar, and it just it just tastes like much much better. That's how I want to have a grilled cheese. I don't want it on white bread or sourdough. To me, it's too fluffy and not substantive enough. You want a better cheddar? I want a better cheddar grilled cheese. What you want? I'm not going to settle for, for more. Mm-mm, or less. Yeah, I'm just going to settle for it. <laughs> A perfect grilled cheese sandwich is actually a part of my last meal. When I start dating someone new, I always do a test. They don't know they're being tested, but it's kind of like a horoscope to predict how good of a partner they will be. I request that they make me a grilled cheese sandwich. Now, I started doing this after the worst person I dated, the only jerk I ever dated, made me a terrible grilled cheese sandwich. And since then, I have noticed that the best boyfriends also make the best grilled cheese. Now, Reggie and I have very different tastes in grilled cheeses. I do not, under any circumstances, want a grilled cheese on healthy wheat bread. Ideally, it is on sourdough or buttermilk or potato sandwich bread. And I want so much melty cheese, it looks like lava oozing out of a bready volcano. Like Reggie said, you have to cook it slowly so that the cheese completely melts and the bread gets perfectly golden and toasty. Which leads us to the worst grilled cheese from the worst boyfriend. First of all, it was on whole wheat bread, which he burnt. And because he was cooking it too hot, the cheese inside never fully melted. It had that weird, rubbery, sweaty quality. And perhaps the worst part of all was how proud he was of this sandwich. Luckily, it's been nothing but great grilled cheese sandwiches ever since. But I'm curious how you like your grilled cheese. Send me a message on Instagram or through the website, yourlastmealpodcast.com. While Reggie and I may differ on grilled cheese, we do have one thing in common. We are both left-handed. And being left-handed has influenced his coffee order. I've asked like once before, I'd be like, can I get a left-handed latte or can I get a left-handed cappuccino? And people understand, you know, sometimes they understand and then they, they do the art the right way. But sometimes you'll get a left-handed barista and they'll do it by accident. And I'll be like, yes, you did it for me. And they're like, no, I'm just left-handed and forgot. Wait, how can you tell? So what side the, 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 the handle is on. Oh, the ha- oh yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Obviously yes. if there's no handle, it doesn't really matter. But like, yeah, but usually okay. but there's a handle, you know, for a cappuccino or a latte generally, and the handle's always on the right side and the, and the art is spacing right side up that way. Oh my God. I'm going to start ordering left-handed lattes. I love that. Yeah, totally. Yeah. See, see what happens. When I was in college, like halfway through, they finally came out with these notebooks that the spiral was on right. the right-hand side. Yes. Oh my God. It changed my life. Yeah, totally. Like constantly, like yeah, you have your hand on these like metal spirals. Well, I mean, you'll still probably get your left hand a little smudgy, you know, because yeah. with ink and stuff like that. But then you kind of yeah. modify your writing style so you're a little bit more on top of it and not touching papers. Yeah. Much. But anyways, yes, there's a lot of issues being. <laughs> <laughs> All right, it's time for the big moment of the show. 
Reggie Watts' last meal. What would your last meal be? Oh, you know what? I would make sure that I was really hungry and I would do an oven roasted chicken um, with a lot of like juices. So it's like really nice and, and with like good, like crispy skin. Mm-hmm. Um, I would do that. And then I would probably do some kind of like a really well seasoned uh, quinoa with like like olive oil maybe in it and uh like some spices and things like that i would do uh probably like a green salad with a really lightly dressed balsamic vinaigrette i don't like heavily dressed salads it always bums me out um and and that would probably be spring greens because i think spinach is too tongue drying um and then uh uh, then I would do, I'd probably do bread. I, I try to stay away from bread. It tastes good, but I always feel crappy afterwards, but I would probably do some kind of like a really hyper fermented, uh, sourdough. Yeah. Something like that. I think that would be the vibe. What is the significance of this last meal? What is the significance of it? I think it's just like growing up with my mom. My mom did make really good, like oven roasted, you know, like in the oven bags, uh, you know, and I love like when you cut into it and like all the steam coming out of it and it's like really moist and everything's just falling apart, you know, and I love yeah. that beautiful, rich sauce that is there naturally from itself and its own juices. I, I, I just think it's one of the most appetizing smells and it's the most like it's the it's the meat that makes me feel the best because even though I will and sometimes I'll dabble in the keto and I'm like eating, you know, steak or a filet and, and those are really good, but there is like a slight. I don't know if it's guilt or like a little guilty. And then also just a little like, ah, this meat is like so intense, like very mm-hmm. meat. Um, and so, yeah, so I, so I tend to like chicken. It's just a little bit more palatable and neutral on my conscience. It tastes so good. It just goes so well. And I think it's childhood memories, but I just love it. For his last meal, Reggie wants juicy oven roasted chicken, quinoa, a salad with balsamic vinaigrette and sourdough bread. When we come back, I hit Reggie Watts with the speed round. listening to your last meal you might like watching my new tv show the nosh with rachel bell we just wrapped up season one so there are four tasty episodes ready for you to binge at cascadepbs.org in episode one i convince an east coast skeptic that seattle now has fantastic bagels and in the season finale we go truffle hunting just about an hour outside of seattle episodes are a quick bite just eight and a half minutes long. So grab a snack and cozy up with the nosh. Available anytime, anywhere at cascadepbs.org or find a link in the show notes. All right, it is time for the Your Last Meal speed round. What is your perfect birthday cake? Uh a monk fruit sweetened German's chocolate cake. Why monk fruit? Because I don't need the sugar. Okay. Sugar is BS. <laughs> I hate it. I, just, I don't like sugar. But I like the way it tastes. What is your favorite movie theater snack? I mean, if it didn't make my tummy sore, 
uh, I do love movie theater popcorn. If I go to like those boutique, you know, places like the Alamo Draft House or some place like that, usually they'll have like a high quality popcorn and they use real butter. Um, yeah. And and then it's I usually I'm actually not sick from that, but it's like the artificial butter. But I will say there is something very appetizing about popcorn and when you dump in a bunch of M&Ms, you know, with mm-hmm. uh, peanut M&Ms. Sweet but, and salty. Yeah, sweet and salt. I love it. It's great. Plus the the nuttiness. But I would say if I could, I would do, again, a monk fruit sweetened uh, peanut M&M style and just monk fruit sweetened. And then the popcorn, I would probably do some kind of like, I'd put like inulin or something in it so that it's- What's it's inulin? For uh, like a prebiotic. It's good for digestion. Oh, okay. So I would like put some kind of a, like a, I guess brewer's yeast. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Or nutritional yeast, uh, you know, yeah. mixed with a little bit of like inulin or some kind of a, a, a fiber thing so that you get this kind of like buttery-ish because that is like a way that people cover for cheese and vegan cuisine. So yeah. I would do like a fine powder so you coat the, the popcorn, maybe a little bit of olive oil or some kind of a good for you oil um, and then mix with that and then put in like monk fruit sweetened uh, versions <laughs> of uh, peanut M&Ms. And then I would have a guilt-free ultimate but relatively healthy snack. That would be my ultimate. With an organic camel's milk butter drizzled on top. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the camel's yeah. milk would be synthesized in a bioreactor, not actually taken from camels. Oh, of course. That's the only way. <laughs> <laughs> and that was Reggie Watts' last meal. Make sure and pick up his new memoir, Great Falls, Montana, a book he hopes might be made into a film someday. Who would you want to play you in the movie? Probably Judge Reinhold. <laughs> I think that's a great choice. Yeah. Maybe the whole movie could just be judges. You could have Judge Judy, and then you yeah. could have Mike Mike Judge. Samuel Alito. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that'd, that'd be yeah. good. Thanks to Rick Brewer, head snail wrangler at Little Gray Farms Escargos. How often do you eat them? I do not want to be like the drug dealer that gets hooked on his own product. So I actually don't eat them a lot because I'm mostly wanting to produce them to sell. So don't eat uh, the merchandise, man. Actually, I don't want to get addicted. <laughs> I like to eat them, though. And Taylor Knapp, Snail Wrangler at Peconic Escargot. You can find links to order Escargot from Rick and Taylor in the show notes. Your Last Meal is a product of Seattle's Cascade Public Media and was created, hosted, and co-produced by me with producing and production assistance from Isaac Kaplan-Wolner and production by Sarah Bernard. Prom Queen does our original theme music. You can stay up to date on events, giveaways, episodes, and other fun stuff by signing up for my newsletter, rachelbell.substack.com. You can find a link in the show notes. And make sure you're following along on Instagram so you can see my strange and sudden morph into a suburban mom. I made a snack-o-lantern for Halloween and these hot dog mummies. It turns out you don't need to have children or live in the suburbs to achieve this lifestyle. Anyway, follow along. Hello, Rachel Bell. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is your last meal. You don't like when people open up their sandwich and look inside at the ingredients before they eat it. Yeah, that drives me nuts. I I hate it when I like like I'll be at a restaurant, you know, like someone gets their sandwich and they just like immediately like like start looking. I'm like I don't know what it is. I, it just bothers the f- 
I'm like, you know what you ordered. So <laughs> just eat it. <laughs> How many options for puns are there on a daily basis? I mean, even just like play on words. I loved the snail mail reference on your website. Uh, there are an infinite number, believe me. And uh, I've probably heard them all, though I'm always willing to entertain more. And you can never be late because then people are like, oh, you're so slow. Hi, Rick. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Beanie Club. <laughs> yeah, well, it's it's a little chilly out. I know. We're both Pacific Northwesterners. we got to wear hats exactly. in our houses. <laughs> exactly.